0: I'm Caleb Zachron, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Business, Management, and Marketing. Today I'm speaking with Tim Huang about his new book, Subprime Attention Crisis Advertising and the Time Bomb at the Heart of the Internet. Tim is a technology policy researcher and the general counsel for Substack. In this book, Tim argues that digital advertising is far more opaque, misunderstood, and fraudulent than most people believe. He worries that we are witnessing a dangerous level of irrational exuberance in the digital advertising marketing landscape. Subprime Attention Crisis is a provocative book that anyone who makes a living via the Internet will benefit from reading. Hi, Tim. Uh, Welcome to New Books Network.
1: Yeah. Hey, Caleb. Thanks for uh, having me on.
0: First question I'd like to ask is what inspired you to write this book?
1: Um, sure, absolutely. Um, so the origin of this book was kind of a, a funny sort of experience that I had. I was um, working at Google uh, for a few years. Um, and, um, you know, I was working there, uh, basically running public policy for the company on artificial intelligence and machine learning. And, you know, I think one of the things that really struck me in the years that I was there was that, you know, the, the company is culturally really excited about, you know, emerging technologies, right? They're really excited about self-driving cars and artificial intelligence and what have you. Um, but on a day-to-day basis, people actually at the company don't really talk so much about how the company makes money, which of course is online advertising. And so you'd end up in these really funny situations where you'd be talking to engineers at the company being like, so how do you guys make, you know, can you explain to me how Google makes money? And they'd be like, oh, well, advertising, of course. And you'd be like, but can you like explain to me like how it actually works? And like even engineers, right? Like technical people at Google, like didn't have any idea about how this massive company really made money on a day-to-day basis. And so the origin of subprime attention crisis really was the idea of like, let's write like a really simple introduction to understanding how much of the internet is funded. Um, And it just turned out that once I started doing that, like a bunch of other really interesting kind of topics came up and, you know, the kind of broader argument that this whole thing might actually be, you know, a lot more brittle or fragile than it might look at from the outside um, sort of came up and, and really kind of became the core of the book.
0: So, this book was released in a series uh with f s g and Logic. Can you tell me a little about that series and how your book became a part of that series?
1: yeah, absolutely so logic magazine is a is a great publication run by a few friends of mine. um you know, I think their real interest is in thinking about how we create good sort of deep public discourse about uh you know technology and its impact on society and um you know we uh they put together this series of books um that I think kind of like Hit on a bunch of different sort of topics, right, in that space. Um, and, you know, uh, the origin of mine was really kind of some remarks I made at a, at a conference where some of the Logic people were at. Um, but, you know, there's other books. Uh, so this book called Blockchain Chicken Farm um, that my friend Xiaowei put together. Um, this is a really fascinating look at how blockchain is like shaping, you know, rural communities in China. And so it's kind of a really wide ranging set of books. But the Common Series, I think, is really. The, the the theme within the series, I think, is really asking these broader questions about how sort of tech reshapes society, and what are the assumptions that we bring when we when we talk about things like technology.
0: And you've definitely been in the thick of it. I, I know at, at Google you were the public policy lead on artificial intelligence, and like you said, even though you were working on this, you still were fascinated by the fact that despite you know all these idealistic, you know, futuristic. Uh, <laughs> uh, things that Google was doing, the way that they were making money still was advertising. was this something that was was clear to everyone, or was this something that maybe people were embarrassed about? What was the kind of attitude towards this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the interesting things is that you know Google culturally like almost no one cares about the people who make money for the company, which is kind of a really odd situation for a company to be in. Um, And I think in some ways it's because advertising was considered so sort of boring and so humdrum, you know, that really, you know, it didn't become a topic of discussion in in many ways because it was so boring, right? Um, Like it's much more exciting to talk about the future of self-driving cars uh, than it is to talk about, you know, how does the demand side platform work in aggregating and deploying, you know, display ad units, Um, and, and I think that, that, that is kind of a big reason why not just at a company like Google, but I think in society at large, um, we actually don't talk about the advertising infrastructure as much as we should. Um, you know, when we talk about something like Facebook, we talk about, you know, Facebook's impact on elections, right. And what is Mark Zuckerberg investing in, in terms of the metaverse, but we really don't talk about like how the company makes money. Um, and, and yeah, and I think that's in some ways allowed this economy to kind of go unnoticed for a very long time, um, because it's a little bit like tax law. It's like incredibly important, but like who has the time of day to talk about it? Um, and, you know, again, I think part of the goal of the book is to kind of shine a spotlight on this really obvious thing, uh, that of course has such a big influence on how the web, um, works and and what we experience online.
0: An aspect of this book is definitely a a history of, making money on the internet. And you really parallel advertising on the internet with the development of financial markets. Um, How is it that advertising became so central to the way that money is made on the internet? When did this start? And who were the pioneers?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in some ways, it's actually kind of a weird uh, tradition um, that has been established, really, by companies like Google and Facebook. Um, because if you, you know, go back to sort of the early days of the web, it was by no means certain that the internet was going to be, you know, funded primarily through advertising, right? Like, if you look at some of the initial pitch decks for Google, it's like hilarious because they're basically like, "Well, we're mostly going to make money through licensing our search algorithm, right?" And like, we may also offer like a search algorithm that's sort of like an enterprise thing that we provide to big corporations. And then maybe like a little bit on the side, we will you know we'll, we'll do advertising, right? Um, and you know that really characterized, I think, the early sort of days of the web, right? Where it's really unclear like how you would fund this whole thing. Um, and I think in some ways, Google was the first one to sort of crack the code, right? To basically say, "Wow, you know, if it turns out that we have so many people coming to our search engine." One of the ways we can make money is not to ask those people to pay us, right, in like a subscription format, but instead to get other people who want to get in front of those eyeballs to pay us. Um, And, you know, it is really kind of that innovation and getting that technical sort of system to work um, that basically created the waterfall of money that funds Google, right? And ultimately, it ended up becoming a model that Facebook followed in becoming one of the most valuable companies of all time. And so, you know, I think in some ways, like it has become kind of what they call path dependence, right? Where, you know, these decisions that were made early on ended up creating these companies that were incredibly, incredibly valuable. And so when we think about doing an internet company now, we say, well, why would we want to try something new? You know, there's this tried and true way of making money, right? And, and why wouldn't we want to use that uh, as a way of, you know, becoming the next Facebook or becoming the next Google?
0: You know, obviously the, the exact numbers about how much money Google and Facebook and the other big tech giants are probably hard to know, but can you give a sort of ballpark range or estimation of how much of their revenue these companies comes from advertising?
1: Yeah. and So in some ways, it's, it's really shocking, right? So you look at a company like Google and you look at a company like Facebook, we're talking about something in the range of 90% of their revenue coming from advertising. Um, and you know, and, and in some ways, this is kind of an interesting way of thinking about like these companies sort of investments in some ways, right? Like Facebook's investment in the metaverse is a money loser right now, right? Like Google's investment in self-driving cars is a money loser right now. But in some ways, these companies are desperately searching for new business models that can make money outside of advertising. And, but, but it actually turns out that most of those are kind of like vanity projects in some ways, right? Like the core money-making engine is still advertising, you know, uh, and this is decades after both of these companies have been created, and and they really are still really dependent on this as a as a source of revenue.
0: Something that I think is, you know, th- that first of all was was very illuminating, and it's something that I think I was aware of, but I didn't know the full extent to which advertising really powered um, powered these companies. And you know, I working at at NewBooks Network, you know, we are in the business of, of advertising, sure. you know, they, our, our revenue comes from advertising. So for very, you know, for very selfish reasons, we were also interested <laughs> in, in having you on to hear your, what, what you think. And I think that, that one of your, you know, your core theses, and it's, it's right in the title subprime attention crisis is that advertising has been treated as this sort of sure thing for making money on, on the internet and that there are hidden risks. So what are some of the, the risks that you see to advertising as a money-making model?
1: Sure. So it makes sense to put this in historical context, right? Which is basically, why are these companies so valuable, right? And ultimately, the reason these companies are so valuable is a belief that the advertising that they provide to ad buyers on some level works, and that it actually like works better than other forms of advertising, Right. Um, that's what makes them so valuable, um, and so this is the reason why a huge company like Coca Cola, right, would say we're going to put our dollars, you know, either between search engines and Facebook, or we're going to put it against like TV and billboards, right? And the reason they've gone to Google and Facebook is that there's a belief that those ads are better in some way. And it is this kind of promise that has kind of funded the growth of online advertising. And there's a lot of reasons to believe why online advertising might be better, right? Um, You know, it's more measurable. You have more data on who's clicking on an ad. Um, Arguably, it can be hyper-targeted, right? We have all this data about this guy, Tim, you know, sitting um, in the northeast of of, uh, of the United States. You know, we can use that data to deliver a message that he's really likely to kind of engage with. And... You know, one of the interesting kind of things when you start digging into the system, though, is that a lot of the promises that we have been sold around online advertising, right, that it is, in fact, so much better, um, may not actually be the case in practice. And that has big implications, right? Because this whole valuable market is based on the promise that it does work better. And we're not just talking about, you know, Mark Zuckerberg having a couple extra billion dollars, right? It turns out that, um, you know, uh, New Books Network, right? Uh, journalistic entities, right? Like they actually also rely on this advertising ecosystem continuing to grow, um, and so there are real worries, which is basically that if the core underlying mechanic isn't actually workable, or if in fact, actually maybe the promises made about it are, you know, a little bit overhyped. That the market might contract, right, in ways that have ripple effects throughout the online economy. And so, you know, the core thesis of the book basically is that what happens if this promise is a lot murkier than it might initially appear?
0: That, that's very interesting. And and some of the, the numbers that you that you have about the effectiveness of advertising are interesting when put in a sort of a generational context in the fact that many of the people that actually do interact with advertisers uh, tend to be a little skew older (laughs) Uh, as this, this younger generation, they might be, uh, more adept or better at just completely ignoring or tuning out of advertising. Um, you know, is this something, you know, this, this behavioral shift, is there, is there a sense that people, um, you know, that people aren't really paying attention or giving ads the same interaction that they used to give them the case? Yeah.
1: That's absolutely right. Yeah. And I think that this is one of the really funny ironies of the internet. Cause like when you think about the internet, you're like, oh yeah, like young people, right? Like all of these Gen Zers that are doing crazy things on TikTok, right? Like that's where the cool things are happening on the internet. And I mean, it is where a lot of the cool things are happening on the internet. But the thing is actually that like by and large, those younger demographics aren't the ones actually funding the internet, at least as it comes to advertising, right? Where it actually turns out that like, it's like the old boomer that's clicking on every single ad on the internet that is really doing the yeoman's work of making sure these, these companies can stay afloat. Um, and so our, kind of our intuitions about where, you know, where money on the internet comes from is also like all skewed, I think in some ways, because we don't really understand this system. But I mean, Caleb, I think you're pointing out, I think, an important point, right, which is basically that there's a question about whether or not overall, you know, one of the problems of online advertising is that we're just paying attention to it less. So in the mid-90s, when the first sort of banner ads appeared online, the click-through rate on those ads, right, which is like the rate at which people like see an ad, they're like, that's interesting enough and actually click on it, was almost around 50%, right? One in two people clicked on those banner ads. Nowadays, you're very surprised to see a banner ad that does better than 0.3%, 0.4%, which at least to me says that basically there's been a hundredfold decline in the effectiveness of advertising in just over a few decades, essentially, right? And that I think should raise some concern, right? Which is maybe behaviorally, there's a problem with the kinds of ads that are the most valuable forms of advertising online. That is to say some things like search and display.
0: Another thing that you point out is that There are, you know, we, we see the, the rise of, of ad blocker, uh, and especially in like Asia Pacific, there's, it's very common for people to use ad blocker. Um, and I, myself, uh, have at various points in time used ad blocker. Uh, what is this sort of threat of ad blocker to these companies? Is this, is ad blocker truly like a, you know, if this becomes something that everyone has spelled doom for Facebook and Google?
1: Yeah, it does a little bit. And I think they will, you know, try their darndest to try to stop these types of trends, right? Um, But yeah, it is a big problem for the ad economy, right? Because ultimately, if you're running an ad business, right, you are a Facebook or a Google, the promise to advertisers is you can take one of their messages and you can put it in front of someone's face, right? Like that's almost as simple of a promise as you can get. The ad blocker totally prevents that, right? Which is that someone is buying an ad and that ad is not even reaching the person it's supposed to reach in the end. And so they got real trouble, right? If that uh, becomes a mass practice through the population, and we do see ad blocking increasing over time, right? I, I happen to think it's not like the biggest threat to the ad economy, but I think it's certainly a matter of concern. And I think it's one of the reasons why advertisers are increasingly trying to find things that like are ways of delivering messages that you can't easily block, right? So, you know, famously, stuff like native advertising, right, where you just like look at a blog post and someone's like, "You should drink Coca-Cola." Um, that sort of thing is really difficult to block programmatically. Um, it's one of the reasons why you know it, these have become sort of hot channels right in the last few decades is because it's an attempt to kind of get around you know people's attempts at blocking ads.
0: The type of advertising that is really common on the internet is is programmatic advertising. So how does programmatic advertising differ from other types of advertising? and why do you spend so much time discussing the mechanics of programmatic advertising in your book?
1: yeah absolutely so programmatic is in many ways the form of advertising online right when we talk about google being an advertising company or we talk about facebook being an advertising company what we really mean right is that these companies are programmatic advertising companies and so what does that mean well you know you think about how advertising used to work in the old days right like the mad men days where you basically have someone who'd want to like buy an ad and what they do is they call an office in new york and they say i want to buy an ad and there's these guys that are smoking in the office that are being like, yeah, I'll, we'll put you in the next magazine, you know, uh, in you know, five or six months from now. So that's not how advertising works today, right? Uh, how advertising works today is really this kind of very, very liquid market for buying and selling attention. And the way it works basically is that uh, uh, an ad seller, right? Someone who has eyeballs, right? Either on, you know, their website or their social platform or what have you. Um, what they do is basically they say, as people kind of um, go to a web page, what they do is basically signal out to a market and say, you know, I've got this guy. Uh, he's a male, 25 to 35, living in the Northeast of the United States. Who wants to show an ad to this person? And what happens is that there's a bunch of algorithms representing ad buyers that bid on the right to show that person an ad, right? and depending on whoever bids the most that ad is sort of delivered ultimately to the uh, the, the person that's viewing the web page and this happens you know billions and billions of times a day and it happens at light speed that's really what we talk about when we talk about programmatic advertising and in some ways it's the only way to get advertising to work at facebook scale or at google scale right you imagine trying to do the mad men way of advertising when you have to basically deliver millions and millions of ads a day and it's just impossible, right? And so this is kind of the way we've discovered to make ads sort of data-driven, automated, um, and and ubiquitous really really is this technology.
0: If I want to go and see what the value of a company is on the stock market, I just you know will Google a Google Apple alphabet or a Google, uh-huh, sure, <laughs> or a Google right. <laughs> meta uh, and I can see the stock price. And if I want to you know, buy a share, I can go to, you know, sign up for a brokerage account and basically, you know, see a bid ask price that's pretty consistent across, uh, across venues. Uh, What does that look like? If I'm a company that's trying to buy ads to, you know, to sell my, uh, you know, my water bottle, my new water bottle company, I'm trying to sell water (laughs) bottles. How do I go when I, I, you know, show, uh, show a million people my water bottle and how much am I buying it for? And how do I know what I'm, what I'm paying.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the way it works right now is that you literally, you go on an exchange um, and it's a little bit more fragmented than capital markets, right? So it's not like you have like one New York stock exchange that is like representing a huge amount of the trading volume in the world. Um, there, there tends to be more fragmentation in how ads are, are bought and sold, but the premise is very much the same, right? You go on this exchange and you say, what are the kinds of people that we're looking to deliver the ad to? Right, and ultimately there is uh, auctions, right, for for that kind of attention. Ultimately, now part of the problem in the space, though, is that there's actually not a whole lot of transparency into what it is you're exactly buying. Um, so, for one, sometimes you go bid on, you know, male 25 to 35 living in the Northeast, um, and it turns out that the person who is clicking on a website is actually not a person at all, right? That it's a bot. Or it's um, you know, what they call click farm, someone who's been paid to go click on ads. And the incidence of this is enormous, right? So for display ads, there's some estimates that about 56% of all ad dollars, they're, it's lost to fraud, right? So that basically says you go on the exchange and you say, I really want to sell my water bottle. Here's someone who I think would be really good to sell that water bottle to. You bid on it, you win the auction, but it actually turns out that that doesn't go to anyone, right? You don't actually deliver your message to anyone. That's a huge problem in the space. The other one that I'll point out is also that the data tends to be really faulty too, right? So you go on the exchange and you say, oh, male 25 to 35, that's someone who I really want to deliver an ad to. Um, but when you deliver the ad, it ends up being, you know, female 65 to 85 living in Germany or something like that. And that's another big problem in the space is basically uh, data accuracy, right? So some studies suggest that about 28% of sort of marketing data might be faulty in this way. So part of the problem is that it's a little bit like you know, uh, you know, uh, bid ask prices, right? That you might see on a stock exchange, but there's a lot of murkiness in terms of how this is deployed, in ways that really raise questions about how, you know, ultimately safe it is, right, for your enterprising water bottle, you know, manufacturer to go and go and sort of buy attention, right, on these markets.
0: And have the companies such as Facebook have they always been forthcoming about the murkiness? Or have they tried to to hide some of this information? Yeah. Like you, you, talked about an element, uh, you talked about a particular case. I don't remember the specific details with Facebook where some of their advertising data that they were putting out like made no sense that they were claiming <laughs> that they were getting impressions on more people than lived in the United States.
1: Yeah, sure, absolutely. So this is, I think, one of the big problems in the space is that there actually ultimately is not a whole lot of transparency. And, you know, look, the companies will say look, we try our best. We're providing the data the best we can. Sometimes we make mistakes. But I think ultimately, these companies don't have particular incentives for candor in the space. Um, and you know, one of the cases that you're pointing out is this kind of famous case of, of Facebook basically going to advertisers and saying, you need to pivot to video, right? Like everybody in the world is watching video on Facebook. So if you want to reach these audiences, you have to fire all your other people and, and hire video producers, right? And part of the problem is that it actually turns out that the numbers they were citing about how much people were watching video were wildly overstated. Um, And this is part of the problem in the space, right? Is that it's like very difficult to validate claims about the marketplace. And so while we, you know, I think one of the original promises of online advertising was that it was more transparent. In practice, it's been very difficult to know what kind of data you can trust and what kind of data you can't trust.
0: As far as advertising in this book, you focus, you know, a lot on, on buying advertising, I think very much from the perspective of like someone who's looking to buy advertising. Um, mm. Something that you don't discuss is different types of advertising, like political advertising. Uh, was there a reason why you chose not to discuss political advertising or you just wanted to focus more on the business side of things?
1: Well, I think in some ways they're all of a piece, right? Um, and you know, I think this is a debate I've had with a couple people when the book came out, but I happen to kind of think about like, we should think about advertising as a channel Rather than trying to create fine distinctions between, say, commercial advertising and political advertising, right? So, you know, one of the cases that I find really fascinating is the case of um, Cambridge Analytica, which you might remember, right? And so, for those of you who might not be so familiar with the case, the Cambridge Analytica case was a situation where, you know, there's this group that was based out in the UK, they obtained a bunch of data about users from Facebook. And what they were doing was advertising to people that they could do psychographic targeting, right? Using this data to come up with psychological insights about people that would allow them to deliver ads that would change their political preferences or their voting, right? And ultimately, it was very controversial because they were involved in the referendum on whether or not the UK should uh, exit the EU, or so-called Brexit. Um, and you know, at the time, everybody was really scared. They said, oh, this is a huge abuse of this data for political advertising purposes. And what what happens in a world in which people have these sort of data-driven mind control rays, right, where they can kind of manipulate democratic politics? Now, you know, a few years later, the ICO, which was the UK's privacy regulator, came out and they did kind of their post mortem on the case. And what they said was, look, while this was a huge privacy violation, right? Cambridge Analytica should never have been able to get this very, very sensitive information about people. We can literally find no evidence that there was enough of an influence on anything they exerted to change the Brexit vote. There's no material effect, right? And so for me, this kind of says that maybe there's actually a similarity between the types of things I'm arguing about commercial ads or business ads and political ads, right? That in terms of the the kind of fraud and claims that are kind of made around this space, um, it's as much of a problem for political ads as it is for, for non-political ads. And I think we should be skeptical about the claims that people make on, on both sides of that fence. At Evernorth
0: Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app.
1: Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
0: I've seen a lot of paywalls going up on you know, various sites that I subscribe to. Um, wh- what do you think about this, this shift to, to paywall as opposed to advertising? Do you think that this is something that for some companies will work and the ad model will still be better for, for others or, or is this just a, you know, is it going to be a back and forth? The tale is, you know, as old as time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, of course. So I do think that like the fact that people are, you know, putting up paywalls and making it work, um, is a sign that I think people are shifting their preferences over time, right? That like people are willing to pay for content in a way that they haven't in the past, which I think is very exciting from the perspective of creating sort of like sustainable businesses online. Uh, Because I think we have encountered these real issues where online ads has made media really brittle, right? And like very difficult to operate. Um, And so, you know, I guess in some ways, um, I think it's a good development, but I guess I'm not so extreme, right? Like My main worry about the internet is that we have created this like monoculture around programmatic advertising, that some of the biggest, most influential and most wealthy companies in the world are really based on like this very specific one thing. Uh, which again, like most bubbles, right, is concerning because, you know, what happens if that bubble pops? Well, there's a bunch of impacts all across the internet that we might want to be concerned about. And so, you know, what I really advocate for is like a diversity of business models, right? And I do think that, look, advertising really does have some great advantages, right? For one, you can make content available for free, right? And therefore, it's a lot more accessible. And so I do think that there, you know, ultimately, I think like the question is, not necessarily whether or not ads are categorically good or subscription is categorically good, but it's just more that like we don't want an internet economy that's so dependent on this like single source ultimately
0: you know just to draw attention to the title one more time, which you know the, the title it's a great title subprime attention <laughs> crisis um, and you know you, you you compare it to the the two thousand eight two thousand nine financial crisis saying that this is this could be something where if the bubble pops it could have massive ramifications. Um, is this something? Is this a you know just a splashy title or something that you think <laughs> think can actually happen? Because even as I was reading reading the book, I was like, okay, like you know, I'm definitely uh, convinced by by many of your arguments that advertising is not all it's cracked up to be. But you know, is this something really something that could could spell disaster for the economy? Um, sure. Well, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I think there's two parts to this, right? I think like the meaning of the title can be taken in two ways. Um, you know, the first one is that economic bubbles have this very interesting pattern, which is basically that you know by the time the bubble is big enough, it can also look like that there's no way for it to ever end. So you know, famously, right, like uh, right before the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis. The banks were reporting their best quarters ever, right? Everybody was doing great in that economy. And, you know, I think one of the funny kind of counter arguments I've had when the book has come out has been people saying, well, all of these sophisticated companies wouldn't put a huge amount of money into the system if it didn't work, right? And I think part of the goal of the title, I think, is to, like, you know, raise the question, right? We basically say, like, it's not a good reason to believe that the market works just because a lot of people are putting money into it, right? Like we have lots of examples in history where people put lots of money into things that turn out to be like a total bubble in the end. So I think that's one is like, I think the goal of the title is to like, you know, call back to that as a way of saying, yeah, you know, it's right. Like we should be asking questions about whether or not this is sustainable. I think the second thing though, which you're pointing out is that I do think that like the popping of this bubble might potentially have all sorts of ripple effects that we don't immediately think about. Now, you know I think online advertising is distinct from something like mortgages in the sense that it's not hooked into all of the key sort of undergirding sort of assets in the economy, right? So mortgages, it's like houses ultimately. But I do think that like what the title is meant to do is to kind of suggest that a popping of this market would have... Lots of you know collateral damage that we might not otherwise expect, right? That it really just is more than just you know whether or not Mark Zuckerberg has a couple extra billion dollars, right? So one of the ones I'll bring up, right, which we've talked about already, is that like a bunch of journalistic outlets um, and media outlets depend on programmatic advertising. So you know the question about the 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 solvency of those types of operations if this market goes belly up. Another one to think about is like think about how many services you rely on on a daily basis for free. Um, because it's subsidized through advertising, right? If you use Google Search or Google Docs, right? Like these are services you get for free, not because Google like loves you as a company, but instead because like it has all this money from advertising you can use to subsidize access to these services, right? A final one that you might find interesting as well is you know I used to work in machine learning and AI, um, and you know so for example Google has uh, this AI lab called DeepMind, right? Which is this like the lab that you know beat the Go champion. Um, you know that's that that unit is a loss leader for the company right it burns money the only reason you can do that is because again you've got this waterfall of money coming through advertising and so you may even be concerned about things like basic research happening right in the event of this market really contracting in a big way and so you know i think the meaning of the title isn't necessarily be like this is going to be as big as 2008 but instead there are all these kind of collateral effects that you know we should be paying attention to
0: Right, you know, you mentioned the AI lab, you know, DeepMind lab and driverless car research at Google, and then you also mentioned the metaverse before at Facebook. You know, is is part of the reason why Facebook is making this pivot or trying to rebrand themselves? Does it directly have to do with advertising, or is this just you know Mark Zuckerberg, you know, really truly believing that the metaverse is the future? Um, like, are, are they desperate? Are they looking for something? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, both, um, it's both the house is burning down and they need to find a lifeboat. What I mean by that is, I think they know that there's danger for a company like Facebook to be so fully dependent on programmatic advertising, right? And so they know on some level, they have to find some kind of escape hatch. Whatever escape hatch that is, that's great. And so if the metaverse is, it, you know, so be it. You know, and so does that mean that the lifeboat they're climbing into, that is to say the metaverse, that that's also going to be powered by advertising? Maybe yes, maybe no, right? Like I think that what they want is ultimately a new market. Um, and whether or not that's get funded through gets funded through advertising or gets funded through some other thing, I think that they are flexible on. But I do think the reason that they're going so aggressively into it is real concerns about what the future of the ad business might hold.
0: Have you gotten any interesting feedback that has made you reconsider some of your your ideas, or rather things that have made you believe even more that this is a, a bubble?
1: Yeah. Uh, so there's definitely some things that I've had that have kind of felt like it sort of confirms the thesis in some ways, right? So uh, I think earlier last year, um, Uber announced that you know it had been running a lot of ads through programmatic means, and that they had discovered that something on the order of about $100 million of their advertising was being lost to fraud. And they just didn't weren't aware of it for a really long time, right? And what's so shocking to me, I guess, is this idea that like that ultimately this can happen in the space, and that fraud on this scale can be occurring. Um, and so so I think you know it's been incidents like that that have made me kind of like say, well, maybe maybe this market is actually a little bit more brittle, right? That like people are starting to talk about this sort of thing, and that like it's very clear that it's starting to hit some of these companies pretty hard in their in their pocketbooks. Um I think I I guess I'll relay what I think to be like the most fascinating counterargument I've heard to the book. So I have a friend who works in advertising who came up to me after the book came out and was like tim 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 you you don't understand what the advertising market is really for, right? And I said, "Okay, friend, like tell me what you think the advertising market's really for." And he said, "Advertising has nothing to do with getting people to buy products or even even branding a product, right?" What it has to do is with making other CMOs feel like a company is cool, right? So the idea is like, oh, I put out advertising mostly because I want like my CEO to be like, that CMO is doing a great job. And for other CMOs to be like, wow, that guy is a badass. And that is what this guy was claiming was really driving advertising budgets. I said to him, well, okay. If that's the case then sure my my thesis is totally broken right because it basically means that like the reason why people put money into advertising has nothing to do with shaping consumer behavior it just has everything to do with you know the kind of internal weird politics of large multinational companies um and you know again i think that that kind of thesis is like hard to verify but it's it's kind of intriguing to think about
0: it, something that i that i was thinking about um similar similar to that um is in the sort of cryptocurrency space, you know, with the Super Bowl, I I think like 20% of the ads were for crypto exchanges. And I I haven't checked what Bitcoin is at now, but I'm guessing it's probably still like down 50% Uh, off (laughs) off of what it was. Um, But something that I found really interesting in just the whole rise of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in the last few years is that I I never really saw any ads. It was all through Twitter, all through these personalities. Um, And I'm wondering, how much of advertising is, you know, sort of like what you were saying before about like, you know, a someone in a blog saying like, you know, drink Coca-Cola. Totally you know, how right. much of how much of the, the advertising market is really just going to be that is going to be these kind of, uh, you know, hidden advertisements where they're not really they're not ads thrown on, but they're ads that are sort of integrated into you know, a person's personality or, some, or something along those lines.
1: Yeah. And there's been a lot of kind of work that advertisers have been doing in the space to scale up, you know, sort of so-called influencer marketing. Um, and I think it's very much kind of driven by a lot of the trends that we've been, we've been talking about. Um, I think that the big question with influencer marketing is, can it grow to the size that all of the incumbent forms of advertising have grown to, right? Because like, Display advertising, search advertising, those are the types of advertising that fund Facebook and Google. Those are huge, huge multi-billion dollar businesses. No one has yet figured out a way to get influencer marketing to scale in exactly that same way. And so I think while we'll see more of it, I think the question from the perspective of like how will advertising evolve is, can this form of advertising grow at a rate that compensates for the decline of other forms of advertising that are incumbent? Um, if it can't, you know, I think the overall market still sets shrink.
0: Going just going back very briefly to what your friend was saying about the about the CMOs. Mm, yeah. uh, you know, what did you think about that? Like what, did, <laughs> <laughs> what were your thoughts about what it was? I mean,
1: initially I was very skeptical, but then I actually heard from a guy who worked in um, billboards uh, for a really long time. And the, the guy from billboards said, you know, oh yeah, there's there's this practice that in the billboard industry, which is when a client buys billboards from you you try to put up a bunch of those billboards right near the guy's house. So when he's driving around on the road, he's like, oh yeah, there's my billboard, you know? Um, And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do think that there is a lot of vanity in how advertising decisions get made. Um, You know, the other example that I was thinking of was uh, when Facebook was really under the microscope and, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was getting called to Congress and stuff. um, There were a bunch of ads in the DC subway being like, Facebook does a great job in, you know, trying to improve the world. And my main reaction looking through those ads was like, who looks at these ads and is like, wow, Facebook's doing a great job. Says so right there on the sign. And so your only explanation for those types of ads as well, maybe it's for people at the company to be like, oh, yeah, like they're there. They're, that's our company being out there in the world. Um, and so I don't know, like I've over time, it's kind of like a strange thesis. I don't think it necessarily... Uh, convinces me that my argument is wrong, but I think it's an alternative thesis that certainly explains uh, a great deal about advertising.
0: Yeah, it, it reminds me sort of like the uh, the Robert like Schiller's irrational exuberance thesis, or just yeah. this kind of idea that like there is a degree of irrationality in markets that keeps things afloat for longer than would make sense by the <laughs> actual value of things, um, and you know that 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 might be enough. It, you know with with programmatic advertising, like you're saying, you know you can target based on age group and and gender and and location um but what about like very specific like narrow casting like let's say I have a podcast about like you know uh the Mets or something uh, and I uh get an advertiser t- who's like selling tickets for the Mets like does that type of advertising work? Is this something that would go out of fashion or or is this that's still you know? part of the the whole s- same system of, of of the bubble that you discussed. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think it is, it is and it isn't, right? So one of the big distinctions that have been made in advertising in recent years is basically what they call the difference between programmatic advertising or really behavioral advertising uh, and what they call contextual advertising. So behavioral advertising is like, I've got all this data about this guy, Tim. I'm going to target this message based on what I think he's going to be interested in buying, right? Uh, contextual advertising is like, this guy, Tim, is looking at this website about plumbers. Maybe he wants to hire a plumber, right? And what you're describing about this podcast about the mets is is very similar, right? Which is basically like you're listening to a podcast about the Mets. Maybe you'd be interested in some Mets tickets, right? Or maybe you'd be interested in a t-shirt with the Mets logo on it. Um, and you know there's actually a lot of evidence that contextual advertising may be just as good, if not better, than behavioral advertising. Um, and it's a, a potential place for things to go, right? Is that you end up in a world where maybe we actually don't need to collect all this data about people to deliver effective advertising. Um, and I think would would sort of remake a lot of the infrastructure that we currently use for ads. Um, and, and I think is a viable path that it almost is like a very big, al- it's like an alternative world that still relies on advertising, but looks quite different from what we have today.
0: Right. You know, obviously a, a big concern with advertising is the fact that it relies so much on people's personal data. Um, and, you know, in, in, like the EU in particular, they have much different laws than we do. Yeah. Um, ha, you know, how has that, uh, you know, that like the GDPR rules, how has that played a role in advertising? And is that something that kind of model, something that you think that could be replicated in the United States?
1: Um, yeah, what's interesting is that people are replicating versions of it, right? So in California, you have what's known as the CCPA, right? Which is kind of like a mini sort of GDPR type structure that people are trying out. You know, I actually think that like, so the the billion dollar question here is, okay, Tim, if you're so smart, when is the bubble going to pop, right? And I do think that privacy laws are a potential place whereby a popping of the market could occur. The reason being is basically advertisers in advance of these laws have made very strenuous arguments and they've sworn up and down, which is basically like, don't implement these privacy laws because if you implement these privacy laws, you know, we just won't be able to make it as a business anymore. Like we won't have data on people. We can't deliver ads effectively. You know, like what, what are we going to do as a business? I kind of suspect given, you know, for example, some of the contextual advertising stuff that we've talked about, which is that it's possible that these privacy laws go into effect. The advertisers lose access to all of this data that they've thought have been valuable for decades and decades. And basically nothing happens. That actually turns out that advertising is almost as effective even when you have no access to data about anyone at all. And... You know, that raises questions about the value of the programmatic advertising ecosystem. And so, you know, I'm watching the laws quite closely because I don't think they've been sort of fully enforced and implemented in a way that would create this bubble popping. Um, but I think it's certainly like a vector by which it could occur, uh, could occur.
0: Now, what are you working on now? Is this, you know, is some of your ideas, Are you are you implementing them in what you're doing today or are you working on anything new? um any new books
1: yeah absolutely so um you know especially after the book has come out i've been thinking a lot about you know where do we go from here and you know one thing that strikes me and i the book sort of ends on this is that i think that there are a couple of things that the government can do to improve transparency in these marketplaces and we're thankfully living in a world where you know regulators are increasingly interested in ad markets and and why they're kind of messed up um, and so, yeah, I've been kind of talking more and more with sort of policymakers sort of thinking about, you know, if we're going to implement a new regulation in the space, what it does actually look like. So, you know, I think there's a lot of work underway to see whether or not it's possible to kind of turn some of these ideas into reality.
0: Uh, now, before we uh, call, call it a day, is there, is there anything else that you would like to mention about advertising or just about, uh, about your, your thesis in the book?
1: Uh, I think the only other thing I'll mention that some, hopefully your listeners will find interesting is, you know, it's worth, I think, doing this really simple exercise when you go on the internet. Um, And it's a great way of kind of thinking about how advertising influences your experience of the web, which is, you know, it's fun to sometimes kind of just look at things on the internet and be like, why, why is this here? And did advertising encourage this thing to occur? So what I mean by that is like, you know, the question I always ask is like, why do we have a like button? Like, You know, why does social media have a button where you're like, this is cool. I liked it. And, you know, one of the reasons is because advertisers need to know whether or not content is performing well and whether or not people are engaging with that content. And so it's much more straightforward and quantifiable if you have a button that someone can push to say like, right, which is so weird. This like very fundamental building block of how social media works in some ways is like facilitated, certainly encouraged by advertising. And you know, I think one important thing I'd urge all the listeners to think about is like you can use advertising as a way of kind of explaining and understanding how websites and platforms are designed, and I think that's a really powerful lens for you know navigating the web and kind of thinking about where it's all going
0: so So the medium in this sense might be the message, uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good way of putting it for sure um,
0: you know something that I found after after reading your book is that there just really is not that much writing and content out there about advertising and especially explaining it. So are, are there any uh, books or, or authors out there that you would recommend for someone who finds your book interesting and might want to continue to learn about advertising on the internet?
1: Yeah, for sure. So there's this great reporter uh, by the name of Shasana Widinski, uh, who is kind of covering the ad tech beat. Um, if you're interested in any of this stuff, she's super active on Twitter. You can find her stuff online. Um, I think that's a great way to kind of like keep an eye on what's happening on the space.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Tim, for being on the New Books Network. It was great talking with you. And, you know, if you write anything in the future, we'd love to have you on again.
1: Great. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, Caleb.